Welcome to the Distinctive Christianity Podcast, where we seek to clarify distinctions between Mormon and Credo-Christian worldviews. I'm Brendan Scoggin, and I am here with... Skyler. Skyler. Sky, Almost sky. said my trusty companion, but then <laughs> yes. I was realized... <laughs> Missionary command. <laughs> Go two by two. Here we are. Here we are. Just the two of us. <laughs> ready to podcast away. Well, you're listening to the first, I almost said real episode, but I guess the other episode was real. Fairly uh, real. The introduction. But uh, this is the first episode we're going to actually be adopting the format that we hope to use for the show, which is to walk through the various lessons that are in the Come Follow Me curriculum, which is the standard curriculum for every LDS ward across the world. Uh, they all use the same curriculum. You know, as, as Baptists, we have this thing called Lifeway. And sometimes I feel like I'm looking at a Lifeway <laughs> curriculum magazine when I'm reading through this uh, this thing. It's, you know, it, it, it's interesting. So, uh, but, you know, what one distinction there is, whereas many Southern Baptist churches might use Lifeway curriculum, many do not use Lifeway curriculum, but that is one way that the uh, LDS church differs, is every single congregation is doing the same material. So it's relevant to study through this material because as we are uh, working through it, if you are... LDS and you're listening with us, you will be familiar with what we're talking about because it will be what you have heard and are reading in your own time. And if you are an evangelical Christian with us, it will be helpful because you'll be hearing straight from the source itself what LDS teaching says, and we will be be doing our best to break that down and decipher or discern what it means. So hopefully we'll be of some help to you. Anything you want to add there, Skyler? No. Let's jump in. Cool. All right. So our first lesson, January 2nd to January 8th, is the date on it. No, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm a week ahead. <laughs> I'm not ready for that. <laughs> yeah, well, actually, we're jumping all the way to March 20th here. Uh, no, December 26th of January 1st, which, as I mentioned in the last podcast, we, of course, are a few weeks behind, so we're going to be playing some catch-up here. Uh, over the next several weeks. But the lesson we'll be looking at today is December 26th of January 1st, and the title of the lesson is We Are Responsible for Our Own Learning. So our plan is to walk through, and we're not going to read every bit of the lesson. Uh, we're working through both the, there's two manuals. There's a Sunday school manual for teachers of Sunday school, and then there's the individual and family manual as well. And we'll be interacting a little bit back and forth with both of those manuals, but we're not planning to like read the manuals. We're just going to hit some points that we find to be particularly important and discuss what we understand those things to mean, both from the LDS perspective in terms of what they're trying to communicate by saying that, and then also how we might respond from a credo-Christian perspective. So this first lesson is we are responsible for our own learning. It basically is an introductory lesson for the rest of the year. Of course, this year, the church, the LDS church will be going through the New Testament. And so this first lesson is really just uh, 
a bit of a charge, uh, an encouragement, I guess you could say, toward every member in the LDS church to take responsibility and to work hard at the learning. Um, I don't know how uh, consistent or, or faithful uh, LDS folks are in doing just this, but I know just from a human perspective, uh, we would agree that, yeah, we, we have a responsibility to learn and to study. And uh, even from a evangelical Christian perspective, uh, the title itself, we, we would at least affirm, yes, we do need to be responsible and we need to dive into the scriptures and we need to learn the scriptures. Paul says to Timothy, discipline yourself for godliness. Um, and so there is a sense in which we do have a, a, a work to do that is a good work. Now we might, you know, differ on what we would say the foundation of that work is, or even the heart and motivation of it. But on the surface, we would affirm that statement. Now, let's talk about the first line in the manual. Maybe even before we get to the first line, uh, you know, I made some notes on the uh, even the the information that was given on how teachers should teach. Um, so perhaps we could. Now, I'll tell you what, let's do this. Let's go ahead and hit on the first line in the uh, we are responsible for our own learning, and then we'll come back and talk about the other bit that I made notes of uh, in the in introduction, before the introduction. All right, so here you go, first line. As you read and ponder the scripture passages in this outline, record the spiritual impressions you receive. You... This will invite the Spirit into your preparation. Um, what do you think about that, Skylar? Well, yeah, I, I think that so much rests on this spiritual impressions point. Um, of course, we would want people to read and ponder the Scriptures, especially in context and as much as they can with sensitivity toward the original languages in context. Um, but it, that is a theme throughout this manual is to record impressions, experiences, invite people in the class to share stories. So it's very experiential. Yeah. I think is representative. of It is very experience centric, yeah. even yeah. beyond that statement. The first paragraph in the in the uh, teaching manual is invite sharing where it says hearing the experiences of others can inspire them to seek their own experiences so there's a heavy emphasis placed on reading the scriptures experientially um, to seek some sort of subjective experience or spiritual impression from the text now as uh, creedal Christians we would, of course, say the, the scripture should be read experientially, but the question is, what place does that have in the interpretation of the scripture? Um, is that primary? Is that first and foremost? Is that all that there is? Is what experience you can gain from the reading of the scriptures? And this point is where a credo Christian perspective would start to depart from the thrust of what we see in the manual, is how we approach the scriptures, um, our, our methodology of interpretation, what you would call our hermeneutics um, would be the big theological term, which hermeneutics is simply the science of biblical interpretation. 
So we would see our approach to the scriptures as being first and foremost scientific. Um, we're not going to do that apart from experience. We're not going to do that apart from a dependence on the Holy Spirit. All those things we would identify as necessary and, and important as well. We would also believe that we can't comprehend the truth of the scriptures apart from the help of the Holy Spirit. And so it should be read in light of that. But we're not just seeking some spiritual impression when we approach the text. What we're seeking is the meaning of the text. Um, and that's, I mean, that's a, a very important distinction. Absolutely. It reminds me of the distinction. E.J. Young, the old Westminster professor of Old Testament, uh, used to say, um, which is we don't just see the Bible as inspiring, uh, but as inspired. And it's not that I define relevance and then see how the Scripture speaks to what I find relevant. It's that God, through Scripture, makes himself relevant and conforms us to that. Yeah. So we are understanding the Bible to be the communication of God to his people through his people. So, yes. so these are not uh, some just mystical words that we read so that we can gain some subjective impression. Um, we're not seeking after just a feeling or something like that. What we are seeking at from an evangelical Christian perspective is to know what God is saying. What, what is God communicating? You know, and, and, and that's where our understanding of what the Bible is comes into play. Are we taking a theological, theologically liberal position where holy texts really are only for the purpose of us centering ourselves and uh, sort of finding our own meaning in the text and, you know, going, going, you know, deeper, not into what the text is saying, but what we want to get out of it. Yes. Um, is that going to be our approach to what the scriptures are? Or are the scriptures the objective communication of God, the reasoning of God, the mind of God, that is being communicated through a human author for us to discover what he is saying to his people? Yes. So there's a scientific objective approach, which is the approach that we take, but then there's a more theologically liberal approach that would take a softer uh, way about it to, you know, kind of, oh, what, what do I want to draw out of this for myself today? Um, what is it going to mean for me today? What's, what's just the general impression that I'm going to receive? Do those match? I mean, those differences matter? Absolutely. Um, we don't approach the scriptures thinking they're just a catalyst for my revelation. You know, they're just a means by which I prioritize my relationship with some vague God. We see it as the triune God that exists, condescending in human language and revealing truth of himself in time, in space, in human language, as fallible as human language is. So... It's, it's not that the most urgent issue is how it impacts us, right, in the sense of my life, my problems, you know, my relationships, my experience. Though those, that those may be, of course, tangentially affected. In fact, I would think they would. They would. 
the most urgent issue is who is God? How is he working and how has he been working in the story that is human history? Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's not us that are the center of the story that God is revealing in the scriptures. Um, the goal isn't for us to just insert ourselves into every story. The goal is to know God. Yeah. Is to know who he is. So in the user manual or the manual, uh, I said the user manual, the individual and family manual, the first line is this in the lesson. The purpose of the scriptures is to help you come unto Christ and become more deeply converted to his gospel. Now, this gets to a bit of what I was touching on and what instruction is given to the teachers at the very beginning of the manual, um, where it says, let me find it here, the, the essential purpose of gospel teaching and learning is to deepen conversion to Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ. Your goal as a teacher is to help those you teach to do all they can to become more converted an effort that extends far beyond class time. So invite those you teach to actively participate in learning about Jesus Christ and his gospel and to act on what they learn. How does our understanding of what the purpose of the scripture is, is differ in reference to that statement? You know, I mean, is it that uh, we're trying to become more deeply converted to the gospel? Um, some some perhaps evangelical Christians who don't know better may hear that and say, oh, yeah, that all sounds like language I'm familiar with. Uh, it, it should be true. But what's, what? I mean, what is the meaning behind that, Skylar? Oh, boy. I'm not even sure where to start. Um, of course, keep in mind with these manuals, sometimes they're worded in ways that are ambiguous, can be taken different ways. Mm-hmm. But when they say be more and more converted to the gospel, I'm not sure what they ultimately mean. Yeah. Like the gospel is kind of a filler word for what families can be forever together forever. Uh, becoming more like God, becoming more like Christ. It, it, it's always kind of ethical. It's always outside the cup, so mm-hmm. to speak. Um, Whereas, of course, we we make a distinction between law and gospel that it's just lost, right? Um, it's almost as if um, in Mormonism, and you get that sense throughout this, and I like what you said. It's not that we should not be dedicated to this if um, Christ's claims are true. It, what else is there to dedicate our lives to? That being said, that's we're not the gospel. How we live is not the gospel. Um the gospel is news. It's not something we live. In fact, what is the f- on the title page, right? Come follow me, living, learning, and teaching the gospel. Living. They put living first. We don't live the gospel. In fact, we couldn't. That's why we needed a Savior. Mm-hmm. It, it's not about what we do. It's about what Christ has done. Yeah. And it's news about that that we, we should live in light of. Yep. But it's not... It's not a way of life. It's yeah. not a tradition. It's not a moral code. Those things are relevant, and the Bible does speak to those things, but that's not the gospel. Yeah. Yeah, the gospel is an announcement. Yes. It's a it's a message of good news. It is a message of uh, 
someone else coming and doing what we could not do for ourselves. Um, so there's an assumption within the gospel that we are unable to convert ourselves. Um, we are unable to move the needle, so to speak, when it comes to the sin in our souls. That doesn't mean that we can't externally clean up some of the stuff on the outside and bring our lives into more of an alignment with the moral teachings of Jesus. I mean, everyone in the world, I I think of, uh, is it, was it Tom Holland has, has a book dominion talking about the conquering of the Christian message over the world. We all live by the morality that Jesus laid down in a Western culture. Um, and so we all could try to make claims of righteousness here or there. Um, the, you know, of course the, the famous Pharisees, we know were really good moral people in, in many ways, but when Jesus comes and is talking about the depth of unrighteousness that we have, the things that he's drawing out are sins in the heart that are really objectively uncontrollable. Um, we, we, we just don't have the ability to attain perfection in the way that God requires, because as soon as we start to feel good about ourselves, we've committed the sin of pride and self-righteousness and depending and relying upon ourselves. The whole point of the gospel is that God converts you. He does a work to change you. And so our understanding of conversion and even of reading the scriptures is not, I want to read the scriptures to this, you know, goal of just being more converted to something. Our goal is to read and be converted by the truth and the glorious good news of this gospel message that's being announced through what the Bible teaches. So Louis Burkhoff is a, is a well-known theologian, uh, evangelical Christian Presbyterian. And, uh, he, he has a, an article on conversion where he defines it as a, really a two-part um, event, I guess if you want to call that. And he says uh, the first part of conversion is active conversion. Active conversion is that act of God whereby he causes the regenerated sinner, that means the sinner whose heart has been made alive, we were once dead in our sins and trespasses, made alive together with Christ by his grace, Ephesians 2, so regeneration is that process of once being dead, being made alive. You're regenerated uh, in his conscious life to turn uh, to to turn to him in repentance and faith. Okay, let me read that again. Act of conversion is the act of God whereby he causes the regenerated sinner in his conscious life to turn to him in repentance of faith. Who is causing there? Are you causing yourself by your reading of the scriptures? No, that's not the consistent message of the Bible. The Bible is a consistent message that God causes sinners. You can go to places like Titus 3 and see that teaching clearly articulated. Um, then, then there's a second element to conversion that he mentions here where he says, passive conversion is the resulting conscious act of the regenerated sinner whereby he, through the grace of God, turns to God in repentance and faith. So God is active upon the heart of the Christian causing him to become converted in the miracle of the new birth, um, the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. God causes this new thing to happen in the believer. That's conversion. And then from that point forward, by grace, the converted sinner begins to walk in repentance and faith. Um, So there's an objective change that happens, not by us willing ourselves, oh, I, I just need to read my 
my scriptures more so I can be converted. No, no, no. You're converted by the miraculous work of God. Have you been converted? Yeah. You know, that's the question that you're asking. Has your life ever had an, a, a real transformation occur where you now desire and long for uh, the truth of God and to know him and to know what he is actually teaching in his word about himself? Um, and then that being a moment, whether you can identify exactly when it happens or not, that that propels you into continuing, I guess, if you want to say, this passive conversion where God's continued to do this work that we as responsible humans are, uh, in a sense, participating in, you know, but it still is happening by the power of his grace as we learn to depend upon him more. It's, yeah, so it's, you know, if you hear people say, you know, well, this this lesson is great because we believe in a gospel of do, a gospel of action, that faith is a choice, and then if you work hard enough, you'll get it, like grades. Um, we believe in a gospel of done, what Christ did. And the objective point of our justification of our salvation was on a cross 2,000 years ago. Now, we do have points in our lives, like you just said, but that's, that's not the gospel. That's the Spirit enacting through the gospel what yep. Christ accomplished. Yep. So this is one thing that we encounter in Christianity among liberals, that the most quote-unquote conservative LDS sound like. It's constantly in the imperative mood. You're responsible. You do this, this, you, you. List of things to do. In fact, let's add every six months. Yep. We believe in a gospel of done receiving through faith, right? Yep. The grace of God, yep. of him accomplishing what we need. And then, yes, we try to live our lives in light of that. But when... We read the law and how far we fall short. It once again drives us to the cross yep. over and over and over again. That Christ accomplished what we could not. Yep. That's, That's right. the gospel. That's right. The gospel is, it's a, it's an ever, uh, at least gospel living, I guess you could say, um, is an ever increasing understanding of what God has done. Yes. Um, so... Growing in the gospel is not growing in how many good works you're doing. It's growing in an awe of how much good God did in Christ. Yes. You know, it's a, it's a looking to him. It's a growing sense of your absolute dependence upon, as Paul would say in Romans 3, a righteousness that's outside of you, a righteousness apart from the law, a righteousness that is revealed only in Jesus Christ, that, oh, I, I need his righteousness um, in order to live. And so as evangelical Christians, when we approach the scriptures, we're, we're not approaching it as a sort of uh, to-do list, how-to manual. Um, those things are in there in terms of how to live faithfully as we follow Christ. But we are approaching it as let's see what God is communicating to his people about what he's done. Yeah. And then we live in light of that, of what he's done. But that is that distinction is, is critical. Yes. Because uh, if all that you have is, I, I mean, this is not accurate to say it exactly this way, but if, if all you have is one half of the gospel, um, which is this transforming work that God does, but you're missing out yep. on the essential 
element of the gospel, which is what Christ has done for us, uh, you're missing the gospel as a whole. You know, and, and that's that's the point that Paul is making in Galatians, I think in large part, is the Galatians are at risk of abandoning the gospel because they are no longer holding fast to what Christ has done. They're starting to see the gospel as being that which they must do. Um, and Paul says, if you go that direction, you're gone. Yep. You don't you don't have the gospel anymore because the gospel is the justification that God has accomplished through Christ. Um, which it says in Romans, yeah. he justifies the wicked. We'll get there when we go to Romans. Yeah. But do we believe that? That God takes wicked people and saves them? Yeah. Or does he take people that are trying? I mean, half a bridge does not get you across the river. That's what we're saying. Mm-hmm. Right? And it, it's just, I think, there's no sense of the imputed righteousness of Christ, of what he earned on the cross, which I think is part of why throughout Mormon history, from Smith to Nelson, the cross is never really emphasized. And it's always Jesus as an example of my faith. No, he's the object of our faith, first and foremost. And the example comes about through the process of sanctification. And in Galatians, right, he does have a whole section at the end of good works, right? But what does he call them? Are they the fruits of our faith? No, they're the fruits of the Spirit that we receive by faith. Yes, which means that we grow in the fruit of the Spirit as we grow in our dependence upon God and our resting in God and our uh, our our recognition that you know we're not going to be able to make ourselves righteous before Him. Right. Uh, the the famous line in Galatians two fifteen: We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. In other words, if anyone has a right to say that we've done the law. It's us who are Jews. Yes. We're not the Gentile sinners who are distant from God. We're the ones who have done the righteous works of the law. We're the ones who know the scriptures. We're the ones who studied it. We're doing them. And he says, yet we know that a person is not justified. In other words, you're not declared righteous before God by works of the law. It's not by your doing of the law. Right. Um, it's not by your doing of the word of God that makes you right before God. Um, and again, we're talking about this because they use the word conversion yeah. and, and gospel. the and right faith. understanding of conversion is this act of justification, yes. um, that God does. So you're not justified by works of the law, Paul says, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So where do, where's the source of your justification? Is it through your own obedience and progress and righteousness? Definitively no, clearly no. Your justification is not by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, through trust, mere belief yes. that he is my righteousness. Yes. Jesus is the one that will enable me to be justified. My justification is in him, not in me and how well I know the Bible and how well I do it. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus— of course, you. in case you were going to try to redefine faith as something else, Paul says, no, no, we just believed in him, that he did what he says he came to do. Um, this, is a, this is a historic reality. He, he came, lived perfectly righteous, died in the place of sinners, resurrected on the third day to new life, and has ascended into heaven. These are real things. We believe in Christ Jesus. In order to be justified by faith in Christ— and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. 
you're not going to be converted by your works of the law. No. You're not going to be converted by how well you know what the New Testament teaches and how well you do what the New Testament teaches. You will only be converted by belief in Jesus Christ. Right. And of course, we're talking about that first essential element of conversion, justification, regeneration, the change that God does, the declaration of righteousness that he gives so that we can then be Included as sons of his, um, as, by as his children by by way of adoption. Not naturally. That's right. By adoption. By adoption in Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, it finishes, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So, th- so that's an essential difference in how we approach the text. You know, we don't approach it to see what, what all we need to do uh, primarily. That is an important element in our yes. faith, by the way. We're, we're not uh, what you would call antinomian. Just do away with the law, do away with the commandments. That's not what we're saying whatsoever. Yeah. What we're saying is we approach the Bible in order to understand what God has communicated about what he has accomplished in Christ. And as we learn and meditate on who Christ is, it changes us internally and causes us to want to respond in love uh, to do the commandments of, yeah. of Jesus um, in their entirety. Yeah, and it's not the law that's the problem. That's right. The gospel is not right. God changing his mind. He doesn't change his mind. Yep. Um we're the problem. Yep. We fall short of the law. So the law continues to point us to Christ. It shows us our need of someone who can accomplish it. So, yeah, it's, you know, there's there's a lot here. And, of course, um, I guess this is an example of how we approach the text that's different. Ours is a God-centered approach. We approach with trembling the Scripture to see what God has revealed of himself that's primarily. Right. And then that will have effects elsewhere. But once again, we don't start with the imperative, do this, do the Daniel was good, be good. In fact, a lot of these prophets, uh, figures in the Old Testament, I should say, if you actually read it closely, they, they weren't good. Yeah. <laughs> but it turns into this kind of... You Moralistic. Know, da- yeah, David uh, conquered Goliath, and you can conquer your Goliaths. Guess what? You're not David. Yep. It, you, right. David was David. That's right. So th- there's no sense of the time the sense of where the story's going, of course, tied to history. Not, mm-hmm. and we didn't believe in cleverly devised myths. Yeah. Says. But in time, God is working toward a consummation at the end. Yeah. And the climax of that is already occurred in Christ, and we're seeing that worked out as we wait for his second coming. Yeah. So one thing I just, and then we, we can go back to this, but just one thing, you know, J. Gresham Machen, one of my heroes is book Christianity and Liberalism, and I recommend for Everybody, I think it's one of the most important books ever written. And, of course, he was dealing with the Presbyterian controversy and the liberals that were starting to question everything, right? Um, the, the issue at his time that became kind of a litmus test was the virgin birth, mm-hmm. which we'll get to next time. But, you know, he talks about liberalism always being this kind of abstract principles that we apply or... Jesus always being the example of faith rather than the object. And always being in the imperative mood, do this, do this, do this, do this. Action, action, action. You get what you deserve. When the Bible, it's an indicative in creation. It's an indicative in the atonement. It's about what he has done. And then it's a Trinitarian work, right? The Father, by the Spirit, draws us to the Son. So it's one God. One God, three persons working out salvation in, in real history. Yeah. That's our assumption. So it, it, it matters what you decide that the Bible is. 
what you decide that the New Testament is. Um, and we're not going to dive into all the details of that because that's, that's, <laughs> it's a lot. Yeah. It's just, it's just a lot. I would, you know, if I could, if I could cross reference or cross advertise, so to speak, uh, I and another brother here at first Baptist church of Provo, um, his, his name's Ed Romine, brilliant, uh, theologian. We're going to be starting a, a second podcast that'll launch here in a few weeks. And, the purpose of that podcast is going to be to respond to various issues in life and in the culture uh, in a way that shows the, the, the possibility and not only the possibility, the necessity of living a life that is sola scriptura. So um, we're going to show how the Bible really does relevantly speak. Um, and we're going to do that by breaking down in detail two or three passages per podcast that speaks to a various topic, uh, doing what we call biblical exposition. And in the beginning of the podcast, just to lay a solid foundation, we're going to start with a seven-week series on the doctrine of Scripture. And what we're going to cover there is what is the Bible? How did we get the Bible? Um, how should we view the Bible? And uh, hopefully that'll be helpful too, um, even in some ways in conjunction with the work that we're doing here and drawing out some of these comparisons and how we approach the text. Um, because we because we approach it as the communication of God, we've mentioned in passing that we we do our biblical reading, if we're doing it, you know, faithfully, we do it with a, with a really a scientific mind in one sense. And what we mean by that, is that when we read the Bible, we are going through a process to try to determine what God communicated through the original author. Um, and that's really important because we we believe there's one meaning um, in the text. And that meaning is whatever God conveyed to the original audience through the original author. Because God is speaking. So if he's speaking and he's speaking in real place and in real time, to a particular people through a particular individual, then the meaning that we need to know is what he was saying then and there. That's the meaning. We want to dig in. We want to know what that meaning is. And then we want to draw out the implications for our lives based on what that meaning is. Um, so th th it really shouldn't surprise us that uh, that's our process because that's how we communicate to everybody every day of our lives. You know, I mean, Skylar, if you were if you were to uh, if we were going to meet up somewhere to uh, study and prepare for this podcast, let's say tomorrow, uh, you know, hey, let's get ready for next week, and you text me to meet you at uh, at some some place that we had met before, but we had our own lingo for it. You know, uh, say you were say, yeah, meet me at Rock Canyon. And, uh, and I said, okay, now I, I have a couple of options there. I can either choose to interpret that to mean whatever I want it to mean and uh, just run with it, in which case I could end up at any canyon in this entire valley because every single one of them has rocks in it. So if I want to interpret that according to my own meaning, um, it's, it, it, I can land in a million places. But, of course, that would be foolish, and everybody would recognize it's, it's dumb to go that route. Because you're, you're conveying meaning in your communication to me. And that meaning has, it, it, what it means is what you intend it to mean. Because you're the communicator. So you're telling me, meet me at Rock Canyon. Whatever you mean by that is what I need to interpret as the meaning of the text. Not what I want it to mean. 
And, uh, and so that's what we believe about the scriptures, that God is communicating his words to us. And we need to understand what they mean by how he communicated that through the original author to the original audience. Absolutely. That just makes sense. Yes. Right? It's um, authorial intent, whereas I think thus far in the manual, it's a lot of reader response. Yeah. What are it's, your feelings? It's entirely what are your impressions? What are your response. experiences? Mm-hmm. Now, I do want to say uh, on that meaning, it's not that that meaning can't be layered, right? So there are senses in which we're going to get into next time, Lord willing, um, that the prophecy of the virgin right, giving birth to Emmanuel was fulfilled originally, but there was also this kind of second-tier meaning yeah. that would be fulfilled. So, But it is still one meaning. I just think there's layers to that meaning that we have to be aware of. And it's not to say, um, I think, you know, I think of it's... Scripture sometimes is defined, this is the trend of our time, as inspired human writings, right? Where it's just like, well, some of it's inspired, and we got to figure out where God spoke. And where. That's not our belief. Yeah. We believe that God spoke through all of Scripture, though through human authors. So it's going to have the human fingerprints, but those are part of the communication. Mm-hmm. So we're affirming kind of God's hand, the human hand, speaking, and speaking not only in the original context, though that's primary, but throughout the time afterward, right? And so, for example, we can read parts of the Old Testament, see what it meant, and see what it means in Christ, and then see what it means in the church age, right? Yeah. But it's still the same meaning. Yep. I don't know if I did a good job. That's good. So, <laughs> but yeah, the, the point is the meaning is objective. Yes, it's absolutely. Not, it's, it's not subjective based on what we feel when we read it on any particular day. Exactly. Going back to the E.J. Young quote, right? It's not that it's inspiring. Yeah. You know, like, well, Aesop's fables and Harry Potter and the Bible or something. It's that it's inspired. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That men spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And we have it now. And we study it in the original language translations, right? Committees try to find the original meaning in its original historical context as best we can. Yeah, because that's the way that Scripture testifies to itself that it ought to be read. Yes. That's the way Jesus read the Scriptures. That's the way the apostles read the Scriptures. That's the way that it is clearly indicated all through the Scriptures that we ought to read and understand the Scriptures. So um, the, the, the testimony of why we should read the Scriptures that way is found in the Scriptures themselves. Yes. And uh, there's really no other place that we could rely on for that to come from if the scriptures are what we say that they are. You know, if this is God's word um, and we're right (laughs) that that's the case, then, uh, then it must be read objectively as his communication to us. And to read it any other way is, is to fall into error. Mm -hmm. Um, It's to subject yourself to all sorts of false beliefs and teachings potentially. Yes. I, and this is key uh, place to emphasize this as well. And in a minute, I want to get to this burning of the bosom yeah. at some point. But there's so much emphasis in the LDS community on getting personal revelation. And um, once again, i got to be careful. I don't want to overdo the point I'm making. Mm-hmm. But Christians are not looking for personal revelation. Mm-hmm. They're looking to God's revelation yeah. and what it means. And, and you can, by the way, Jesus, as the incarnate word, models this over and over. I challenge yeah. our LDS friends. I challenge you. 
find a place where there was a controversy brought up to Jesus where he said, go pray about it and tell me what you experience. No, he constantly points them to the scriptures and yeah. says, this is what God wrote. God spoke. That's right. So, you know, it, people will say, well, it's circular. Well, if the God revealed in the Bible actually is, what higher authority could there be than his word? Yeah. Well, once Jesus, you get to that level of authority, what, it has to be circular. Yes, if he points to your reason, it's your reason. If he points to your experience, that experience is a higher authority than the scriptures. So we are, I, I think we're all made in God's image, so we're all in a sense verbivores. I don't know if you've heard that. Verbivores. Yeah, that's good. Uh, we're all, you know, but um, I think that inherent in the LDS approach to scriptures is a distrust of the Bible that yeah. we talked about last time. Yep. But there's also this almost distrust in words. Yeah. Um, it's a very, it's got a very much a postmodern hmm. kind of undertone to a lot, even the believing parts yeah. of it. Where how can you know this? I mean, my my point would be this. That if we can't trust what Luke wrote, for example, in its original Greek, in its original context and all that, we can trust, but trusting someone's experience is more, more yeah. fixed. That's right. I mean, as if experience is less malleable yep. <laughs> than words that yep. we can all look at and, you know, as a standard apart from any church authority, apart from any pastor, yep. um, that we can judge what they're saying by. So yeah. it's key to point out. That's good. Yeah, why don't we go ahead and go to the the uh, point on the burning of the bosom because uh, that'll be helpful to show how this idea of spiritual impressions is is a deeply rooted idea. Because on the surface, I mean, say that you are an evangelical Christian and you read this, uh, you you could pretty easily brush over that and not understand that the uh, LDS Church has a has a deeper meaning that's going on when they're talking about spiritual impressions in the way that the scriptures are approached. So how does that play into some of the the thoughts that circulate around the idea of the burning in the bosom? Yeah, um, of course, there's a long history to this that I can't do justice to. And of course, the points I'll point out, someone can be like, well, this talk, this talk. Okay, there's a gazillion quotes on this. Yeah. But I think if I'm looking for a common denominator... You see it in their scriptures that they include. Uh, Doctrine and Covenants, section 9. Um, really, the Covenants, section 9, as it currently is constituted, um, where this is uh, supposedly a revelation given through Joseph Smith to Oliver Cowdery. Um, and it's over an answer to prayer. I'm trying to put it quickly here. And it says this in verses, uh, verse 8, 8 and 9. Uh, this is so key. But behold, I say unto you that you must study it out in your mind. Then you must ask me if it be right. And if it is right, I will cause that your bosom shall burn within you. Therefore, you shall feel that it is right. It's key. Feelings are really big in whether something is true or not in the LDS mind. But if it be in verse nine, but if it be not right, you shall have no such feelings, but you shall have a stupor of thought that shall cause you to forget the thing which is wrong. Therefore, you cannot write that which is sacred, save it be given you from me. So there's a lot of trust in the feelings of man. Mm -hmm. Of course, the Bible right says only a fool trusts in his own heart. Yeah, 
you know, there'd be a way, it says in Proverbs, there'd be a way that seemeth right to a man, and it's a way of death, Yep, I think is what it says in Proverbs. Um, you know, the heart is deceitfully wicked. Who can know it in Jeremiah? But here you can see there's just this inherent trust that if you pray sincerely and feel something's true, it's going to be true. Yeah. And th- th- this is really key uh, when it comes to conversations, yeah. uh, interfaith dialogue here, because so much is unspoken in that dialogue in the sense that if I say something that causes them discomfort, they may not think it consciously, but sometimes it subtly makes them see it as untrue. Yeah, And there's no, there's no category, or I should say for most, not all, of course, I'm not trying to paint with too broad a brush, but I, I'm, this is not made up. There is this sense that if it's true, I will feel that it is true. Mm-hmm. And, of course, apart from the scriptures even. So once again, the scriptures might be inspiring. You kind of find key phrases. In fact, it says this in their manual. Yeah. Uh, you know, find key phrases that stick out to you. And even if your feelings are completely different than what you're reading, that's probably what the Spirit's communicating to you. Or you're, yeah. it says even the Heavenly Father is communicating to you. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not where the term burning of the bosom does come from Luke. And that's not what it meant originally. Yeah. It is, and I think, should we go through this passage? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, Luke, Luke uh, 24. Luke 24. Is uh, one of my favorite passages in the Bible because of what it's communicating, what Luke is trying to communicate to his original audience, who, by the way, would have been uh, a bunch of Gentiles who probably had some insecurities about them, wondering if, they had the truth of God in the same way that a Jew would have the truth of God who is from the lineage of Jesus. And Luke is is laboring diligently to communicate throughout his book that Gentiles are included. And one of the ways he does that is by showing the centrality of the Bible that they have in their hands that Jesus still leaves with his people um, to give them everything that they need. So, uh, yeah, why don't you pick up just a little bit on what's going on in chapter 24 in particular? Yeah, so this is after the resurrection. And this is the famous road to Emmaus passage, starting in, I think, verse 13. And we'll just read through this. And I, I encourage everybody, of course, anyone listening, to, to read through this whole passage. Um, that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. There's some irony. Yeah. Since those very things that will redeem Israel. Yep. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. 
They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he is he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, and him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and notice this, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Yeah. And uh, keep in mind, and this is key too, there's a lot of heart passages in the Bible that it's so easy for modern people to interpret as the seat of emotion because that's how we think of the body, I guess, in a metaphorical sense. Mm -hmm. But in the ancient world, ancient Near East and Mediterranean world, the heart did have something to do with will, but it was seen as the seat of knowledge, like you think with your heart. So um, anyway, that's key. Slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Notice he calls them out for unbelief. Was it not necessary that the Christ, the Messiah, should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses. So this is the resurrected Savior. Yeah. You, You think that the first priority would be... Wow, the experience of yeah. seeing this. Yeah. But it says in Peter, we have a more sure word yeah. in the scriptures. And that's why it's so critical to see that that's what Luke is trying to communicate to his audience is yeah. that Jesus is about to leave. He, he's about to ascend into heaven um, and sit at the right hand of the Father. He's, he's about to be gone. Uh, does that mean that your source of, of knowledge, comfort, uh, authority is flying away into the abyss and leaving you to depend upon your own feelings and emotions? Or is there something certain that you're going to be able to latch onto as your anchor for all of life? Jesus is trying to himself show, yes, yes, I'm leaving. Look what you've got. This is all you need. And so, yeah. Yeah. So after the resurrection, what's the first lesson he teaches them? It's a Bible study. Yeah. Verse Verse 27. And beginning with Moses, and that's key. His liberals won't believe that anymore. <laughs> beginning with Moses, That's right. okay, and all the prophets. Meaning, he, meaning beginning with Genesis. Yes, I mean yes. the Torah. Yes, the books written by by Moses, mm-hmm. and all the prophets. He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That's right. So he's saying, yeah, you have the scriptures, and guess what? It's about me. Yeah, it's not about you. That's right. Although it may include you, <laughs> I like how Michael Horton puts it. He's like. You know, he's not an actor in our life movie. Yep. Right? Yeah. No, it, it, you know, he he's God. This is God we're talking about. He comes to us and says, in this scene you die, and I'm going to write you into my script. Yep. So interestingly enough, though that we don't read the Bibles with ourselves primarily in mind, we will end up in Christ by the Spirit finding about things about us in our hope. Okay, so in verse 28, so they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. I love that. Yep. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. I think that's so fascinating. Yep. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us? Here's, here's the burning of the bosom. I think the KJV actually has the burning of the bosom language, if I'm not mistaken. hope I'm not getting that wrong. Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road? While he opened to us the scriptures. Yeah. And there's actually some really cool language that's being used by Luke in that passage to show 
that yes, uh, there, there's this opening of their eyes to see Jesus and to be able to recognize who he is, but then the cause of the burning of their hearts is the opening, yeah. not even of their eyes to see Jesus, but the opening of their eyes to the scriptures. Yes. To know what the scriptures say, to understand the scriptures, yeah. um, and what they teach concerning Jesus. The fathers drawing them to the Son by the Spirit. Yep. And then, I'm going to skip his head just Please. for the sake of time. Yes. Um, the next scene that Luke puts is Jesus appearing to his disciples, and Luke uses that same idea of the opening of their eyes or, or minds in verse 44. He says, Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while, while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the, in the Psalms must be fulfilled. Verse 45, Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And he sends them out. And then Luke, who also is the author of Acts, continues with this idea of the scriptures, the word of God being the authority for the church by actually using a phrase throughout various transition points in Acts. And at each transition point, he will say that as the as the kingdom of God advanced, the phrase he uses is, and the word of the Lord increased. So the whole idea is Jesus is leaving you with the scriptures. That's your source. That's your authority. That's what you need to understand to understand the things concerning Jesus. And as his kingdom advances, it advances through the proclamation of this word, this message about Jesus, who he is, which is proclaimed through the scriptures that he has given us. Uh, so that's what we latch on to. Absolutely. For everything. Um and that's, I mean, that's how we read the Bible Absolutely. is to understand the things concerning Jesus. Right. Now, now um, I don't, do you want to touch on any of the additional resources that they mentioned there? Um, well, any points on that? I think, I think we've hit a bunch of them as we've spoken. If, if people want to take a, a look at the ideas to improve your personal scripture study, section in the Come Follow Me manual for individuals and families. It is online. You'll see that a lot of what we said did interact with a lot of those points. Good. Um, I, I do think, and we just don't have time to go into these specific passages today, but even just this, we need to know the truth for ourselves. That's the heading. Yeah, that's the next heading. So yes. you've got uh, yeah, you've got the first heading, invite sharing. We've kind of talked through that. Then teach the doctrine, and teaching the doctrine is uh, the first heading is learning requires acting in faith, and uh, we've talked touched on some of that. And then the next heading is uh, we need to know the truth for ourselves. Right, and it, it, the first line under that says many passages, not all, many passages in the New Testament teach principles. See that principles that can guide our search for truth. And then skipping ahead to the last line, uh, or you could read these passages to class and invite class members to share how they gain their testimonies. So it's, once again, it's kind of this scattered proof texting that's inspiring. Find these abstract principles to then guide us on our search for abstract truth 
Whereas we believe Jesus is the truth. We believe that God speaks to us through the scriptures and the spirit draws us to the son. Um, that the father draws us to the son by the spirit um, through all of scripture. Yeah. So I, I don't want to overread that because it's obviously a little ambiguous, but I just think just even the tone of the lesson, it's very clear how self-centered it really is coming from a Christian perspective. Right. And and that's not to say there aren't Christians that do this. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, if you want to see the documentary American Gospel, you'll see plenty of examples of um, self-described Christians. Yeah, prof- that, professing, professing evangelical Christians. Yeah, that, that yep. we would be criticizing as well Yes, um, in this. Um, but I really wanted to land, this is the last thing on my list, was right after that it says, it, it cites Acts 17, 10 through 12. And it says, Acts 17, 10 through 12, describes saints who search the scriptures and gain their own witness of the truth. Yeah, which we we, we talked about that statement. Um, it, yeah. I think that's so interesting because uh, when I read that with an evangelical Christian background, um, I would read that as as being more innocent. And perhaps perhaps that's part of the struggle with this curriculum. A lot of it is pretty ambiguous. It's hard to know exactly what is meant by what they're writing there. Um, so go ahead and share like what you read into that. So, yeah. um, and by the way, may, maybe fill out what Acts 17, 10 to 12 is talking about first, and then kind of share with us what you think could be going on in the LDS person's mind. Now, again, if you're LDS and you're listening to this and you're like, nope, that's not what's going on in my mind. That's fine. That, that's that's fine. There's a spectrum, right? There, like there that's is. part of it. But I, but yeah, go and share with us your <laughs> well, thoughts what, on that. How, how I read it, and um, like I said, I know it's not the only way to read it. I'm not trying to be unfair here. It, it says, in my mind, this passage is supposed to describe saints. And by the way, it's the Jews of this synagogue. It's not saints, though. There probably were saints among them, for they listened. But... Um, they search the scriptures and then gain their own witness. I read that as kind of a burning of the bosom kind of thing where, you know, they listened to what was said and they got their own testimony, burning of the bosom that it was right, and then um, followed suit. And so kind of this getting together and sort of searching things and being affirmed in what they ought to believe based on the sense that they get, not from the text, but from their impression. Yeah, so yeah. What, what I fear happens too often with this kind of self-centered hermeneutic, this reader-response emphasis that's throughout. Like, you, anytime they cite a passage, they never explain anything about it. Right. They just say, read it and see what you yeah. think about it yeah, and that, that's, or feel about that's it. That's pretty much the same in the uh, Manual for Individuals and Families. There's not much commentary given to help guide thoughts. It's always left open-ended look at this passage and write what your impressions are. Right, and I think what happens there um, is that often, and I, I can speak from personal experience as someone who used to do this, even if I decorated it with, you know, some higher criticism, Bart Ehrman and Margaret Barker, is it turns scripture into a mirror rather than a window. Mm-hmm. And um, so it, just to go over this passage really quick, I think it's important to see in the context you already helpfully described in terms of Luke's pattern throughout Luke Acts. But in, in verse, I mean, in chapter 17, you know, this is Paul and Silas going on missionary journeys and going into synagogues. And, um, and it says, even as was their custom, 
Uh, so in verse 2 of chapter 17, and Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Messiah. This rabbi from Nazareth, he was the Messiah. Um, and then if you go ahead, of course, they're, they're also experiencing opposition. But here's the passage that was cited in the manual. Uh, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Why? Why are they more noble? They received the word with all eagerness, examining what? The scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them, therefore, believed, and not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. So, you once again, it's it's not they're not they're, yeah they're not reading to gain their own testimony per se. They're reading to figure out is this Jesus what the Old Testament says he is exactly. And if God is not revealed in the Old Testament, how can we evaluate whether Jesus did fulfill that? Yep. So if we're reading the Old Testament and not seeing Christ. We're the pro- we're not reading it right. Yeah. We're not reading it because the way he an said. Because there's objective to read it. meaning. Exactly. That's there. Um, yeah. So, so it's, it's not just. Yeah, it, it's fascinating to think that you know we we can begin to read the scriptures in a self centered way, um, and think that we're interacting with the things of God when we really are just just finding ways to turn it into a self improvement manual yeah. or something of that nature, rather than this declaration of who God is and what he's done to save sinners. Absolutely. And that's, you know, going back to this section nine of the Doctrine and Covenants, that's one thing that's completely absent, you know? So this, once again, this is supposedly a revelation from the same God that inspired these scriptures. (laughs) And yet it says, I say unto you that you must study it out in your own mind, not a mention of scripture, and then you must ask me if it be right, right to prayer. And if it is right, I will cause that your bosom shall burn within you. Therefore, you shall feel that it is right. But if it not be not right, you shall have no such feelings. So it's, once again, it's a very, it's not just a self-centered view of Scripture. It's a self-centered epistemology generally, right? It's feels good is good. And I, I, I want to say this, that that is true in the church and true among most that leave it. Yeah, that even if you go the, you know, progressive post-Mormon route, you'll notice this rarely changes. Yeah, because this, it still is a religion of self. It is. And a religion of feel good. Yeah, feels um, good is good. Yeah, and this is one of the, the things that makes, I think, uh, uh, you know, even from, from our perspective, seeing uh, a LDS person come out of the church and into something like evangelical Christianity is a miracle because the the LDS religion is jiving with the modern culture as a whole. Um, you know, it, there's a there's a theologian that I'm sure we both really respect, Carl Truman, who's written a book, The Rise and, and Triumph of the Modern Self. Yes. And in that book, he's tracing the history of philosophy in a way that shows how this prevailing sense of the self and how the self is the center of the universe and you 
and having all your needs and desires and dreams and everything met and the whole Disney message of follow your heart and you will find happiness and, you know, all these things that we see in the culture, these are things that popular current uh, Mormonism is taking on. And it'd be hard to deny that it is um, because it is heavily rooted in seeking after your impressions and your improvement and your betterment and uh you know the all of those things we we would we would say can have their place so long as they're rightly rooted you know what i mean like we we do want to be wise in how we care for for ourselves but to anchor the meaning of our lives in that is tremendously empty and disappointing Um, because everyone's going to have moments in your life where you'll be in an end of yourself um, I think it's by no mistake that that uh, even the place that we live has such a high depression rate um, because you've got to anchor your life in something other than you yes. or you're gonna you're gonna live meaninglessly yes and and people do right Augustine said right there's a god-shaped hole in every human heart mm-hmm. that's meant for God yep and we are worshiping it. We're not just rational. We're not just political, though that's true. There's wisdom among the Greeks. But we're worshiping animals. Yeah. And and this is the thing, you know, to tie it into the final quote in this manual. And it says, David A. Bednar, this is... Which, prepared. by the way, the, the heading for this section is claiming spiritual knowledge for ourselves. For ourselves. So, again... <laughs> yes. It's not hard to point out the this the uh, I want to be careful to use the self centeredness yes. of the the lesson here. But go yes, ahead. Absolutely. It, he says, um, if all you or I know about Jesus Christ and His restored gospel, once again, gospel, is what other people teach or tell us, then the foundation of our testimony of Him and His glorious latter day work is built upon sand. We cannot rely exclusively upon or borrow gospel light and knowledge from other people, even those whom we love and trust. And I would just say this. I think that is an accurate LDS position, obviously, since the leaders, for the most part, define it, what the LDS position is. Not not entirely, but the Christian response would be, everybody borrows light. Yeah, Christ is the light that lighteth every man in the world, and in fact, to become Christian is not to become more dependent. It's to recognize that dependence. That we want to completely rely on the light that is Christ, the triune God, working in history and revealing of himself in the scriptures as they document him saving a people. Um, That's good. And, and so it, it's, you know, people try to feel that, void of needing something beyond themselves in social justice. Not that that doesn't matter. Yeah. It's just, you know, they make, they make a God of sex. They make a God of the state. They make a God of the self. There's like this gravity, the spiritual gravity in the room um, that if not being filled by the triune God who exists is going to be filled by something. We do not choose whether or not to be religious. We choose how. Yeah. I know there's, we, and, and, by the grace of God, I hope all will come to be drawn by the Father in the Spirit to the Son yep. and receive forgiveness for their sins and to rely on Him wholly and not to claim spiritual knowledge for ourselves, 
but to lean on the one who has the spiritual knowledge for himself. Yep. Uh, Father, mm. Son, and Spirit. Perhaps we could say in a pithy way, don't read the scriptures for self-fulfillment. Yes. Read the scriptures to see the Christ fulfillment. <laughs> yes, exactly. Da-da-da. Yes. No, Wait, totally. where's the, which button does the... There it is. There it is. <laughs> yes. Oh, man. No, I, I, just even following up on that quote of basically... Bedner saying, don't rely on the things that you've only heard from other people. You got to find some internal thing for yourself. Um, just hear the words of Paul to, to Timothy. He says to Timothy, but as for you, he doesn't say gain your own testimony through, uh, seeking after an experience. He says, but as for you continue in what you have learned. So he learned it from someone, someone spoke something to him and he learned it. Continue in that. And have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Timothy, you had a godly mother and grandmother who taught you the truths of the scriptures, who taught you these sacred writings, the Bible, that you need to hold on to continue in what you learn. And then that's where he says the next verse, which we'll, we'll cover this one plenty of times. All scripture, Timothy, is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Yeah. Don't try to gain some internal testimony Continue what you've been taught, Timothy. Yes. <laughs> because what you've taught are the God-breathed words, um, the words that God gave. So keep, keep to those. Yes. Right? He continues, not to overdo it, but just it's so fitting with what we've been talking about. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word mm -hmm. be ready in season and out of season reprove rebuke and exhort with complete patience and teaching yeah for good. the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching but having itching ears they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions mm. suit their own passions what i want to hear yep and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths yep hmm. teach what you were taught yeah. which is the word of god the truth of God, eternal, unchanging, forever reliable and trustworthy for the people of God. That's something you can actually grab onto in the craziness of life in this world. Well, that's been good. Uh, I hope that you've enjoyed it. Give us a like and subscribe. Let us know what you're thinking about the podcast so far. Next week, we'll be looking at Matthew 1 and Luke 1. See you then. <laughs>